All right. Welcome, everyone. All right, here we go. Get that mouthful in, the food. There we go. All right. Awesome. So uh, welcome to 2016 Soapbox. Woo! So this is our, our first one of the year, and uh, I know we're getting everyone warmed up, so hopefully this one's going to get you guys going and get you excited for the things you're doing. So glad you guys could all join. I see a lot of familiar faces and some new ones out there, which is great. Uh, today we have a special guest, Sandy McPherson. Uh, is the pronunciation that is uh, Canadian because <laughs> we have a Canadian joining us, our best friend, Canada. Yes. Uh, just to introduce, oh, I already have a question. Okay. Are you a Canadian too? Oh. Oh, okay. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Sandy's from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, she has an MBA from the uh, Schulich School of Business, and uh, it's kind of a neat mix of things that she uh, combined, the uh, sustainability, entrepreneurship, and technology. So uh, some people would say that's confused. You're going to tell us why that's not confusing. Uh, she's the founder of Quib, which is a successful startup in Silicon Valley. She was actually at a, I actually met her about three or four years ago at uh, one of the soapboxes, which is really awesome that we have uh, attendee actually coming to speak again. She's had a phenomenal growth with Quib. I'm a user of Quib and have been so for the last year and a half. And she's also the founder of 5050, uh, which you set up last year as a way to create uh, voices in tech for women and trying to be able to speak at conferences. So uh, welcome, Sandy. Thank you very Thank much you. for joining Thank us. You. Um, so this, this crowd, it's always a, a discriminate crowd, a very smart audience. I uh, love that we get to be in Silicon Valley because they're always asking uh, tough questions, and we'll open it up to questions at the end. So if you sure. have something... Uh, we'll save the last bit for you guys. Uh, I think it's, uh, in your story, it's a little interesting. Um, everyone in Silicon Valley comes with some other thing, right? It's like uh, LA where you're also an actor and something. So you sure. came to uh, Silicon Valley and you had uh, ideas of, of starting something big. But I want to talk a little bit about uh, your uh, environmental background and sciences yeah. and how yeah. that got you excited about um, even tech, so you've got this yeah. kind of mixture, but the beginnings of that experience and understanding science, how did that transition you into thinking about wanting to be in tech? Uh, I would say n not at all. <laughs> <laughs> or anti-reasons <laughs> for wanting, yes. Yeah, yeah. so basically, um, so my back, I was always interested in science. I really liked math and chemistry and physics. Um, and when I went, when it was time for me to, you know, go off to university, what I chose to focus on was environmental science because it was basically a minor in all of the sciences. Um, and so I really liked that. I really enjoyed that. Um, and what happened was, is I ended up working for the government, which was where it all started going wrong. Um, and basically what I worked for like the Canadian equivalent of the EPA, so the Federal Environment Department. And my title was really scary. My title was a toxic chemicals biologist. Um, and so I worked with pesticides, um, fallout from power plants, um, a bunch of really scary heavy metal stuff. Um, but what happened was is I kept working on all these problems that I thought were really interesting and important for the world. But because it was inside of the government, they would end up getting written into papers that would end up on a shelf in the library of the government department. And then it would, then I'd do another project, and it would also end up in the library on like the third floor in some random corner. Um, and so if anything, I got a little uh, disillusioned, I would say, by working in the uh, sort of environment sector. And so 
that's where the MBA sort of fits in. So at that point in time, I think it was 2000, 2007, 2008, um, and corporate social responsibility was like getting big at that point. And so I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. I can take my background in science and the environment stuff that I know really well, and I can apply that to a corporate, some sort of corporate partner or through a corporate lens. And that would actually have some sort of an impact versus the government stuff that I was doing, which was right. a little bit frustrating. And did it, or is it just a different type um, of? So, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, so what happened was I did, uh, I did a year of my MBA. And the school that I went to is like best in the world at this like sustainability focused MBA. Um, but even so, I think part of the problem was because I did know the science so well, I could kind of see through it all. And uh, it was also, um, what's really interesting with CSR is a lot of it actually sits inside of the marketing department of these companies. And so it's like, what? <laughs> like, that's not right. what I'm signing up for. Um, so did it, did this? Salary your experience with science, or are you still is science uh, still in part of your life? Yeah, it's still something place? that like I really enjoy and that like I read. Yeah, like science, like science nonfiction stuff all the time. Um, but it was um, it was then it was halfway through this MBA, and I was sort of like, huh, like this isn't going to work either. I don't want half an MBA. I'm going to keep going. What's Plan B? And so Plan B, um, my my dad actually lived in the valley in '99, 2000. He's always been an entrepreneur. He's worked for media and tech companies his whole life. And so for me, it was sort of like, oh, OK, why don't like, I do that? Like, that's always been interesting to me. Being an entrepreneur, I think, because my dad was an entrepreneur, was never like a, everybody always talks about it as this like, jump off a cliff, super scary, oh my god, what am I doing thing? For me, it was like, oh yeah, I can like, that's a like, clear option. So um, the, this option, and uh, it sounds like you, you sort of had net logical steps in your own yeah. progression. If you look back, yeah. there's a clear pathway there that you, you've taken. So you, I know you moved to Silicon Valley about five years ago, and you uh, made a big jump, obviously coming from yeah. Canada, and then moving into Silicon Valley is sort of like uh, two worlds, right? And uh, yeah. um, I know I've uh, read uh, a lot of your experiences here. How would you say, um, say that experience of, uh, um, say, being in that Cyrus environment and in say, that government agency work and, and perhaps even the larger companies and, and coming into Silicon Valley, is, is there much of a culture change? Is it, is it when people read about Silicon Valley, they sort of glamorize it sometimes, yeah. and then you know, maybe you get here and you're like, what, you know, yeah. <laughs> how I is this place any different? I, so yeah. I, maybe help people compare and contrast to what you would describe as is, is probably not Silicon Valley, and then coming into Silicon Valley, what those differences are and how that's actually affected the way you think about problems and the way you approach say, maybe your daily work. Or sure, yeah. Um, I think one of the, I think it was also emphasized for me because I am Canadian and we're sort of known to be a little uh, humble and shy and say sorry all of the time <laughs> <laughs> versus Americans, which are Believe little... me, when we talked before, she was not saying, sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she said, can I be a pirate? She's all my swear words. <laughs> uh, versus Americans are much more brash and they just simply ask what they want for. And it was definitely something that I noticed when I got here. I was like, oh, OK. Um, that's how it's done. Um, and so for me, I think it was helpful that I, I actually went to an event the other night, which was um, this organization that helps Canadian entrepreneurs. And this woman asked me, she was like, oh, well, how do we help with this cultural stuff? And I was like, well, you know, for me, I think I'm lucky because I wasn't actually, I was like lightly, lightly involved in the tech scene in Toronto, which is where I was living before I moved here, but not really. And so when I moved here, 
it was starting from ground zero. So I didn't have any like bad habits from like a smaller ecosystem with right. a less developed system around sort of how things work. And so it was starting from ground zero and I was learning from um, the people in the world who do it best. Right. Um, so I think that was, while it was definitely like a shock and I had to again like stop saying sorry and <laughs> actually ask for things, um, it was, I think probably in the end it ended up being the better, the better path. And do you think there's something in being in Silicon Valley that supports entrepreneurs who are trying to do this? Obviously you put yourself in this because you wanted to say, yeah. hey, I wanted yeah. to, to, yeah, yeah. to go build something. Yeah. Is there something in the air? Is there, is there something to it that supports? Yeah, so efforts? I think one of the reasons why I moved here was I recognized that, okay, building a company and like me making this like career shift is there's like a lot of risks involved. There's all of these different types of risks. One of them is the risk associated with the location where I decide to put myself. And so the location of Toronto had risk to it because it's you know, not the best place in the world to do that. And it was also one of the risks that a lot of the risks are really difficult to mitigate against. Whereas location is like, okay, I know how to mitigate against that. I just literally pick up my body and I put it over here. <laughs> and right. it's like, okay. Um, and so it was recognizing that. Um, and it was sort of just like trusting in this, like the lore of like Silicon Valley is a special place um, that got me to make the move. I did come for like a few months and sort of like stayed for a little bit and then went back to Toronto before I like ultimately made my decision. Um, but I think it is, um, I mean it is, yeah, it is unique in the world and it's, it's why everything else is named Silicon something. Right. Because <laughs> it, it's a zombie yeah. to this place. Yeah. So d taking that and, and moving into this space, I know, um, and, and reading through some of uh, um, uh, your writings and, and talking about uh, the business, I'm fascinated by this idea of what you call uh, normies versus yeah. techies. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I almost envision it sort of like a petri dish where you're the scientist trying to work with these groups and figure out what it is. Yeah. Uh, maybe talk about what, it, what that means to you and, and sort of how that fits into how you think about problems here. Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, it's interesting because at the same time I do work on a product that's like a lot of like early adopter like tech people. But yeah, I think the idea of normies for me are people who, I mean, it's basically me when I first got here, where I still remember the first time somebody was talking to me about product. And I was like, what do you mean? Like my mental model of what is a product was like a physical thing. Right. And the fact that like digital like products were actual like products to me was like, what? Right. Um, and so I think with, um, even like it's always really interesting when I go back to, I just got back from Canada last week, um, watching like my friends use products and seeing them like complain about certain features and talk about the products where I understand like why that mechanic is there and why that button is this way and why it leaps to this and all of these things. Um, and so for me, normies are people who just simply like use products as they're intended to be used and they don't actually have any understanding of the like mechanics um, even the like nomenclature around what are the right. different parts of this thing. So it's um, a techie then. Techie a... person is somebody who isn't like in some way like built or understands products. So they have to code? No. 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 It's a techie within Silicon Valley. So they might know product. <laughs> yeah. They just like the lingo yeah, yeah, yeah. and they like to be yeah. part of the culture. Yeah, like it's, yeah. I think, and I don't even know if I've called them. I think I, 
Yeah, I have a couple. I have a couple. I have another term actually that I don't we'll often that, write yeah. about, but the, because it's slightly more embarrassing than normie. Um, so that one is I call uh, the fancy people. The fancy. So the fancy people, people are the people <laughs> who um, who sort of take for granted the network saturation that they have around themselves and the voice that they are able to project on the internet that they assume everyone else is able to project on the internet, but they don't recognize the characters and qual like qualities that they have okay. that enable those things to happen. Um, so like when you talk to certain people who are, like they'll tweet something on Twitter and they get like 50 retweets and they're like, oh, Twitter's amazing. Like everybody's so, like you get so much social feedback whenever right. you do anything. And um, so there's sort of like, there's normies, then there's this middle group that, I don't think I've named them, but yeah, like tech people. Okay. And then there's the, all right, so if I projected uh, something <laughs> uh, techie, so where would you fit in? How do you fit into those worlds? Yeah, so I mean, I try to. Are you Mr. or Mrs. Oz trying to I, figure out how to work with these people? No, or yeah, well, I mean, I try to maintain my like normie roots because I think one of the one of the reasons why I started Quib was because I started um, it was like about a year after I had been here, and I sort of recognized how tech people use Twitter is really unique and novel, and it is not how normies use Twitter. And right. so it was being able to identify that difference that then led me to be able to build Quip. Right. Um, so I recognize that that's like an important lens to be able to maintain, and I, I try to like dust it off every once in a while, because it's hard at the same time when you're living and breathing your product every day right. to get out of that. So I, I, I also... Uh, know that you were trying to learn somewhat about design and taking classes around design. Yeah. We're a product design company, and I think I like to fashion us as maybe in between techies and uh, normies sure. and trying to figure out how do you uh, discombobulate the things that happen between a technical system and, and, and the people. Um, how would you describe design in your world now? How has that influenced or how has that put a lens on what you're doing? Is it is a refinement to your product? Does it give you new access to ideas that you didn't see before? Or is it, you know, how do you see design in what you're um, doing? I think it's one of these things where, um, for me personally, I just think about it in terms of my, um, the granularity that I'm able to like identify and like the level of taste that I can uh, like glom onto some certain product or some certain interaction has been heightened because I now actually have some of the terminology and I know like what the standards are. Mm -hmm. um, but I still see myself as like a very like, my design skills are still very junior. Um, but yeah, I also like learned some of the tools. Um, even working with designers was really helpful because having conversations with a designer for like the first time was like, oh, okay, I'm learning a lot right now. Right, so um, let's talk about Quib in just a sec because I think people understand like, well, what does that all mean in relation to what you're doing now? <laughs> Um, I know when you first got out here, you're like, all right, let's set up shop. Let's figure out what we're going to do. And you started prototyping and making things, and that was yep. your first step. Um, yep. Seems kind of contrary to the idea of science and kind of more rigor <laughs> and thinking about, like, what's going on. And, yep. and then you're just going to move all the way to a different country in a different place, and you're just going to start making things? Yep. Is that, that was yeah, the plan? Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to pop myself here and start making things. Yeah. Yeah, and so one of the, um, and it's, it's again one of these arguments that you often hear around like, oh, well, you can't start building things until you know how to do that. Um, and I, like, in this case, when you're talking about building, like, software, um, you typically need to learn how to code to, like, build things. 
Um, but my approach was like, okay, I, I did actually learn, uh, like I learned a bit of Ruby at the beginning, some JavaScript, um, just so I could actually sort of actually understand like what I would want okay, to do. Okay, let's, let's just stop there because sure. just coming in and doing some JavaScript in sure. Ruby is not like, sure. and people now are like, well, she's nothing like me now. No, like, no, no, like, no, I mean, this, is like, this, this like, is like, this is like Code Academy. Like this okay. is like super basic, like nothing. This is like, yeah, like 10 hours. Okay. Of code I think this people are not still impressed, like, like you're, okay, you're not doing tech, but you're just going to take some classes in this and yeah, try and yeah. figure out how to build a system? Like, yeah, but like still. very, very basic though, like very okay. basic. Like my, the, the, my most complex project that, or like program that I built was like in terminal and it was a blueberry bush that would grow blueberries and then you would pick them and then they would die and then other ones would grow. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking really, really simple. Um, You're making the hearts of every engineer proud. <laughs> you know, very impressive. Yeah, like so that was it. Um, I still think that, that's pretty that, impressive. I mean, that was like, yeah. I mean, that was like, I don't know, after like 20, 30 hours of like homework with Code Academy. So. so when you start doing this and you start saying, okay, well, let's make some things, um, does it, does that type of, uh, I think it's hard sometimes when people put a lot of barriers in front of themselves and say, okay, I need yeah. to learn all of these things. And here yeah. you are just saying, well, I'm going to go make something. I don't know what, yeah. but I'll just kind of throw some yeah. technology yeah, in there. I'll do some networking. It's like, yeah, so while how, I would, how does that work? Yeah, like, so I never know? like at any point felt that I have to make a more complicated blueberry bush before I'm ready to like launch something. Right. It's never that. It was more just as I was working on things, I was like, oh, I probably need to like figure out like what am I building products out of? Um, and so like the very first, again, product that I worked on was, um, and it's interesting too because like I'm coming from an MBA at this point also. Like I had graduated from school. I was out of school for maybe eight months before I moved down. Um, and so the MBA mindset is just like very interesting when it comes to starting a business. Um, and I think oftentimes one of the easiest business models for that type of person to understand is you sell a thing. So like in the world of um, tech, that means e-commerce. So the first thing that I worked on was an e-commerce product, which was basically um, a Tumblr and tiny letter. And that was it. And they sort of like talked to each other. And then I had like a Twitter account where I would try to like promote the posts that I was making on Tumblr to get people to sign up to the tiny letter email. Um, and how'd that go? Not well. <laughs> I mean, it went, It was fine because and How I, did you know it, not, it didn't go well? Yeah. Some people do work on ideas for like two, three, four years, and you just do something like, ah, I'm Yeah, do I think something. I worked, I mean, that was maybe like a month or something. Okay. So how do you know um, it's done? It's not going to work. It's, it it's, was, it was also, what was interesting in terms of, I worked on, I want to say, four-ish other products before I started working on Quib. And what happened with three of them was I actually didn't like them anymore. Okay, so um, you, you chose, it wasn't necessarily user feedback or someone yeah. else telling you, you just said, I don't want to do this yeah. anymore? Yeah, so it was a little bit around like that first e-commerce one. It was, it was a really good way for me to even learn like tiny letter exists and like right. how to use Tumblr and like tweeting pictures. So that's like really basic That's stuff. exciting, but most people I'd tell like go build model airplanes or something else as a hobby, but you made it your career. Like I'm just going to do this now. So that's yeah. pretty intimidating for most people. So, you know, when you have a hobby, there's not that clarity all the time. It, you just kind of fade away from it and you're kind of saying, "Well, that's how I started this. I just faded away from it." Yeah. Yeah, so cuz I you had put yourself in that mindset. That doesn't seem like the traditional mindset of yeah. someone that's trying to 
build I guess, something. I guess not, now that you say it that way. <laughs> um, Am I right, or like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe I'm the wrong person here, but it seems like that's a pretty big hobby to turn yeah. into a career and just do set up shop and start yeah. doing stuff. Yeah, because I did have, um, again, being a Canadian, like the, I, I recognize that I was lucky to also be able to get myself here. I mean, there's a bunch of like visa issues. Um, and so because I'm a Canadian with an advanced degree and I was working part-time for a U.S. company, I was able to like feed myself um, and be in the U.S. And so that was sort of always on the, um, was my like plan B. It was like, okay, if this doesn't work out, I have this part-time job that I could morph into a full-time job and it'd be fine. But I chose to make it a part-time job right. and to spend most of my time. Um, because again, I mean, like I like, sold all my furniture, I like left all my friends behind. I was like, I'm making like I'm making this very like clear choice to go there and to do this thing. And so if this is what I'm choosing to do, then I need to actually um, right. invest the time in okay, it. Okay, so you, you did these prototypes, you did some stuff, and then you got this this new thing going and in retrospect it seemed clear that that was the choice you made, but how do you know you got this thing called Quib? And maybe you can let people know a little bit about what Quib is and then how does that how did you know you were on the right path with Quib? Was it just because you liked it that felt right, or there was something greater here you could see emerging from this effort that you were trying to put yeah. into it? Um, yeah, so Quib is a way to get the news that you need every day to do your job. Um, and so it functions, the product itself functions kind of like Twitter. Um, there's a reverse chronological feed, you follow people, and the stories that appear are pieces of content. So it's a link to a VentureBeat article, a link to somebody's blog post. Right. Um, and then at the end of the day, you get an email of all of the, the best content from your network. And everyone here can join, right? Uh, <laughs> you put me on the spot. <laughs> um, everyone can apply, and everyone will get an email. Um, but part of one of the ideas around Quib is that it's almost like what is the next instantiation of industry journals and trade publications, and that's how I think about Quib. Um, and so, in order for in order to maintain some level of quality, I have to make sure that the authors to my publication are actually they actually know what they're talking about, and they can choose quality content. Um, and so there's an application um, that you have to submit, and then people are vetted, and you're either accepted or not accepted, as he's hinting at. Um, but, if you're, but if you're not accepted, um, you do still get uh, an email every day based off of uh, your Twitter graph. I got my acceptance very quickly. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, with Quib, it was interesting because I learned, yeah, after working on a couple things, I learned I didn't like e-commerce. Um, I had a really bad experience building a product for Craigslist sellers, um, which imagine your worst nightmare and take it like another 100 feet, and it's really bad. Um, so I decided not to do that. Um, and then I started working on, at this point I had been, yeah, I had been in the Valley for like a year. I was starting to like understand a little bit more about how things worked there, how people picked ideas. Um, and I think it also became more clear when I first landed everything sort of felt new and confusing. And then once I had some time to settle in, I was able to sort of step back and be like, okay, what do I know? What do I think is interesting? What would I want to use? What do I need in my life right now? Um, and I was able to take more of like a holistic perspective in terms of what do I want to actually spend my time working on. Um, but I'm, I'm also a big fan, I have to say, of copying. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, it was recognizing that because, yeah, I'm like, 
I didn't, I'm not like a Google APM graduate. I'm not like, I wasn't a product designer for five years. I don't have all of this backlog and experience to draw from to think about markets and products in interesting ways. Um, and so it was more thinking about, okay, well, what sort of problems and issues do I think are interesting and do I think are big where I can sort of plop an right. existing product model onto. And then also at that point I had been, I, I had enough of an understanding around how products work, specifically how social products work, that I could sort of re-architect some of the underlying bits of that product. And so in my case, it was sort of taking Twitter and thinking more about, okay, well, if I wanna do it in this industry journal, professional news context, what needs to change and what needs to be different, right. recognizing like that I understood Twitter pretty well. Right. In some ways, you're my worst nightmare. I'm everyone's cocktail conversation. I have this idea. <laughs> where they have no technical expertise, no idea of how it is, but somehow you said, okay, I'm going to do this, and you're just going to pop yourself in the middle of it, right? So as a non-technical person trying to do this, what, what would be your word of advice for someone that hasn't gone down a technical pathway to say, okay, yeah, you can pop yourself in, you can find opportunities, you can look at markets, you can create things that serve a particular purpose, and you, then you can go start a, a, a business. What would be your advice there to those people uh, where most people around the Valley would say, you are crazy, don't do that. <laughs> Go learn yeah. a technical skill first, yeah. right? Yeah. So what, what would be your advice to those people that are uh, um, thinking about this? Yeah, well, it's funny, again, as you say this, I'm like, yeah, that maybe does sound like a bad <laughs> idea. <laughs> um, but I think, it, I think it is true, though, that um, one of the things that I tried to do very early on was I, I recognized that I didn't know anything. Uh -huh. um, and so I was always super transparent, and um, I would always try to meet with people who I thought were working on problems that were in some way related to what I was working on and who I knew were really good at what they did. Um, and so I think, and again, this is like back to your question of is the valley actually like interesting and magical, as people say? And I think that's a big part of it is that you can ping a random person, they'll actually reply to your email, and then even more, they'll actually meet you for coffee. Right. Um, and so I think I tried to do a lot of that in the early days and just tried to meet people who I thought would be interested in what I was doing, but also would be able to give me some advice and feedback mm -hmm. um, that would help me. Right. Um, and so I would say that that was like really important. And again, I did try to, yeah, learn a little bit of Ruby, learn a little bit of design, learn some like marketing stuff, which I had a, like a fair bit of that from the MBA, but I did try to understand like all of the little different bits of what I'd be working on because you do need to have like a base level of understanding and you have to know the language and the terminology to be able to actually have useful conversations. Right, so I think sometimes we oversimplify technical or non-technical and that somehow yeah. sums it all up. Yeah. Uh, you have an MBA, you just went in for some like training on some Ruby, like. You actually have a lot of these components that make you curious, right? That are able to spark things in growing a business that uh, yeah. uh, are really important to that experience. So um, I think that's really important to your story because you do bring lots of diversity of ideas and you're able to actually solve yeah. And it might things. actually be, um, like thinking about it, it might actually be maybe because of my background in environmental science, which is like a very like interdisciplinary right. science. Right. Uh, yeah, I just, you know, in some of like how people describe the non-technical and technical parts, I think, uh, you know, in some ways you, you're kind of like, well, that's interesting, but, you know, if you're going to do what yeah. you're going to do, go for it and try and articulate different parts of the problem and make them smaller. Yeah. So And have a part-time job on the side so you can 
eat. <laughs> say. Uh, a lot of your approach is common man or, or plain folk. Uh, in, in Zurb, we use a lot of that just to make ourselves approachable. Um, we teach people a lot about what we're doing and invite them into conversations. And I know this is something uh, that you do as part of your network and getting people to participate and, and share lots of, of components. Um, in that approach, uh, as a um, small company, I'm just curious like what, how that's sort of manifested itself in, in what you do every day and sort of the benefits of that and you know, how you look at that and, and also maybe some of the problems or things that it, uh, it might cause for you like as you sort of make yourself, I mean, you raise money, you put yourself there. I think you even asked your, um, your, the audience like what your yeah. salary should be. I mean, that's pretty bold as yeah. far as like, you know, involving people in the transparency of your, your yeah. um, business. Well, it's funny because people always talk about it in this way. They're like, oh, it's so transparent and like this approach. And I'm just like, I just didn't know what to do. So I just asked people. <laughs> um, and that's really where it came from was, again, like I was building this product and I didn't know what I was doing. And I recognized that it, it's weird because it's a little bit meta. It's like I built this thing, but then the, I learned about building the thing as I was building the thing right. from the people using the thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I yeah. sort of like built my own perfect learning engine. Right. Um, we, we call this marketing is the product is the marketing. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a cyclical thing in which yeah. you're actually investing in it, but that is the product that people want. They want to see you yeah. in this role trying to figure it out, and yeah. they learn themselves with yeah. you. So. so yeah, so there was a bunch of like I, um, like I would think about rolling out a new feature, and I didn't know if it was a good idea or not. And I'd be sitting at home talking to myself, trying to figure out if it was a good idea or not, which clearly is not going to get you very far. Um, and so then I was like, OK, well, these people use the product. They like the product. They want it to exist. They want it to get better. I should just ask them what they think. Um, and all of the people who use Quib are mostly tech people. And so they actually have experience. And they've been through similar situations. And they've made similar situations or similar decisions in the past. Um, so it was kind of just like a, of course, I would ask them sort of a moment um, where I'm sort of confused by the other side, like this like seemingly normal practice of not asking people to me seems um, like the more alien approach. Sure. Yeah, I can see that. Um, but you probably realize that most people are like that. You know, there's a certain component of asking for help or even exposing yourself as yeah. not knowing the answers. Obviously, when you're in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of bravado. There's a lot of money sure. being raised. There's a lot of people that have to put themselves out there. They're taking millions of dollars. How does that, um, you seem so patient with it. You seem so relaxed about it. How, you know, in an audience like that where you're dealing with all these people that are exchanging ideas with such intensity and fervor, and uh, how does that work with, with you? Does it put you at odds sometimes, or does it feel uh, like perhaps like uh, you have to watch your back, or there's? Uh, not, no, I've never, I've never had that feeling. There's definitely been. Um, I think if anything, one of the, I was talking to another uh, CEO about this the other day, where um, one of, I think, the biggest skills that we both learned as uh, founders of startups was to ignore. <laughs> and just like the power of like recognizing that something is not relevant and is not important and is not worth your time, even if it's coming from somebody who, in theory, knows way more than you do. And you'd be silly not to listen to them. Um, and so I think it's one of these things where, for me, it's just really important, and it's at the core of how I've built the company to like be really inclusive and to ask people for their feedback and to try to make it the best that I can with their input. 
Um, and so it's just, it's sort of like the rule of building Quib is, is that. Awesome. So I find uh, extreme value out I use uh, Quib and I, you know, I get emails in my inbox and I always find something interesting by one of the, the people in that uh, sphere of mine. Um, where are you going with the product? What are you going to do with it? How do you evolve this network of people that are very passionate about sharing their information and seem to get a lot of value out of it? Where do you yeah. believe that to go? Or yeah, so the, the reason that I started Quib was, again, I was coming from, uh, I was living in Toronto, I was working in clean tech. And for me every day, getting the news that I needed to do my job was an extremely haphazard process. I would read um, I had like a bunch of bookmarks. I had a bunch of email newsletters coming into my inbox. And then even after I read all of those things, I was still sitting alone at my desk like, oh, that was interesting. Um, and so it was that experience, then a year in the valley, being exposed to things here, seeing how tech people use Twitter. And I was like, oh, that's what I need. Is I, need some, I need this core of this product, but built for this use case of news and content from experts and professionals um, that are similar to me. And so that's sort of where it came from. And so when I, when I think about it and when I talk about Quib in the long term, I, I talk to how Quib, I want Quib to satisfy the needs of clean tech, Sandy. So I want any white collar knowledge based professional to be able to use Quib to understand what's happening today. How do I do my job well? How do I like go to that networking event at Zurb and like sound that like I know what I'm talking about? And how do I talk to my boss? And how do I, uh, you know, work uh, with my colleagues better? And how do I improve myself professionally? Um, and so that's the. So when do we see that? Uh, over some time. <laughs> yeah, because the current focus it started with a lot of like startup people. It's since expanded to more like corporate tech type people, and then beyond that to more agency folk, to people. There's like a couple examples. There's like um, the guy who's the chief digital officer at McDonald's. So in theory, he's like food services, but he's really interested in everything that's happening in tech and sort of the digital realm is really important to him. So another guy who's VP marketing at IHOP. So it's interesting to see how it sort of expands and how there's these industries that you would otherwise not consider similar to tech, but tech is creeping into all of those industries. Awesome. So right before we open it up to everyone here with questions, uh, how do they get beyond your red rope? Uh, submit an application. <laughs> <laughs> what, are, and, what, what are you looking for? What's yeah. the secret sauce? Yeah. How, so do I, they, how do people get in? I do look for, there's a couple. Oh, at the beginning, it was literally me just like Googling all of the applicants. That was, again, I'm a big fan of like being extremely manual at the beginning. Everything I did at the beginning was just me. Um, and my Gmail account. Um, but it's, uh, the idea is, yeah, I, I want people who are able to contribute interesting content, interesting conversation also, because there's a, there's a big commenting piece to Quib. Um, and so I try to look for people who, in some way, the outside world through like their jobs or their projects or something has validated that this person is really good at what they do. Okay, awesome. You guys gotta be really smart. Uh, you guys have questions for uh, Sandy? Yes, right there. All right. Can you talk about your journey? How did you start? Yeah. How did you get to uh, Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So, Quibs, I raised a seed round. Um, and it was, I, I was in a very lucky position because a lot of the people who use Quib um, are investors. So, there's a bunch of investors, uh, angel investors, and institutional VCs who use. Um, Quib, and so I already had a bunch of existing relationships with them. 
Um, and so when it came time for me to raise money, um, I also did it in a non-standard way. I did it through general solicitation, which is the new way that you can publicly raise money under the Jobs Act. Um, but that meant that I wrote a post. Again, it was like in my <laughs> transparent way, I wrote a post on Quib, and I was like, I'm raising money. Do you want to invest? Fill out this Google form. Um, and then I had a... She takes, it, she takes his common woman approach so far. Yeah. She, she says she doesn't I don't mean things. to. It's just I, sort of I what happens. I picture her for like slaving <laughs> away with all these answers. Yeah. You know, so I have, like a, I have a Google form or a Google sheet that's like just like the name, uh, their typical investment amount, what they're interested in, why, their phone number, and then I just got on the phone and called everybody and met them for coffee. Um, it makes it sound like brushing so teeth or something. It was so easy. <laughs> but it wasn't you just the do the form and put it I, there. <laughs> I mean, it is like I, I do though recognize that like that is a very um, lucky position to be in, and a lot of people don't have investors using their product every day and like wanting to like meet them and all of these things. It's a very non-standard situation to find yourself in. Awesome. Uh, my name is Kate. I'm from uh, Google. So my question is that um, there's a big pain point that. People who try to like, uh, you know, keep users engaged have like, how do I keep my users engaged? And on top of that, how do I keep my users coming back? Because that's where the business is. So how do you keep your users coming back? Because if you start sending out emails with news, which I told you not really interesting, I might not come back. But how do you make sure that uh, the comeback rate is higher and it keeps going? How do you do that? Like, how do you keep users engaged? Yeah, so it's one of the she things. Puts up a Google form and <laughs> <laughs> put me in your calendar on Tuesday, Thursday. Um, yeah, it's one of the things that I think because you're basically talking about growth and retention, and one of the things with growth and retention that I think oftentimes um, it's an afterthought. A lot of times, people will build a product and then they try to try to like tack on growth mechanics and retention mechanics and features specifically for um, that end. Um, I'm a firm believer that you have to have those things in the product and they have to be um, core to what the product is and how it works and how it functions. I think product category is also really important. Um, even when I first started Quib, it was recognizing, okay, what, what is, like, a lot of the stuff that um, Eric Reese talks about in the Lean Startup is how we've moved away from technical risk and we're now more in like marketing risk and that's where it's really difficult and why startups are hard. And, one of the things um, around marketing risk is, yeah, how do you get people to actually use your product and come back? Um, and so for me, it was recognizing that, okay, category is really important. I'm gonna actually pick my business and pick my company based on categories that I know have um, inherently more um, engagement and higher retention um, and focusing on that and like actually being really thoughtful. I spent like a lot of time thinking about before I started working on Quib, what is the product that I want to work on, and how can I somehow make it less risky? And one of the ways to do that is to build it in a category that is um, ha that has inherent retention to it and inherent more more engagement and higher growth. Actually, my question uh, was more towards you said you sent out emails with value element users, right? So how do you figure out that person X, Y, or Z wants to read more about media, and or Y uh, wants to know more about advertising or marketing? Yeah, so, so Quib is based just off of who you follow. So there's no filters, based, there's no like tagging, there's no categories, there's nothing like that. It's based solely on the people who you follow. So if you follow somebody who works in 
a role that's similar to you, then you'll get their content. And in theory, their content is relevant to you because they do the same job as you. Yeah, it's amazingly pretty targeted, but that must be my work that I did to make my social graph yeah, accurate. Yeah. And you're pretty smart because yeah. you piggybacked off of that, that, which yeah. is awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a couple more questions. So. And then I'm sure, do you have a few minutes to ask and answer? Hi, someone, uh, I'm a long time user of Quick. Thank you. Uh, it's one of my primary source of information along with Grammar, Newsletter, and Facebook, 60 TV. Um, so, my question is uh, actually, I see myself using Medium more and more. So, like Medium, has, they have amazing integration. Like, they somehow pick seamlessly the content that I want. So, a Quick is eventually becoming competitors. You know, they're, they're up and a quick is becoming more stale as a result. So you, I'm sure you have time for like making it still sounds fresh to people and then still interesting. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, you know, one of the things that didn't change much uh, was the usability. So I'm just wondering, you know, like, what are those plans to like keep this quick, like a fresh, you know, the content is fresh and people coming in still fresh and then user pick. Yeah, yeah, because I think some of the, like, the, again, the underlying um, understanding of, like, people interacting with content on the web are similar, whereas with Medium, again, it is very much, like, about the network um, and having all that content exist on that network. Um, and with Quib, that's, like, a very similar idea where I was like, okay, I just need to develop the one place where people find all of that content. And with Medium's approach, it's more, okay, we're going to be the place where that content is itself also created. Whereas in my case, it's like, okay, well, that's, that's like one way to do it, and that's a good way to do it. But in my case, I recognize that that's like a really expensive and difficult way to do it that I don't have the capacity to do. And so in my case, it's more, okay, well, how do I make sure that this is a really easy way to get all of that content into the product, uh, irrespective of where it's coming from, and there's no sort of penalty or advantage based on the source itself. And so that allows me to... Um, to have access to and to distribute and share content irrespective of where it's, where it's written. Yeah, and I would say even in my own use, the serendipity of finding a new resource that has content, it might even be like a graph with some text. It's not in this sort of narrative format, so I find that the, the content... Yeah, because people like, will share like podcasts and people will share um, just like random things that they, they find in terms of like books sometimes or PDFs. Um, and so I think we're still at a point right now where the content that is interesting is still widely dispersed. And so it's the idea with Quib is how do you make a place where all of that content can live and exist. Awesome. One more, one more question. How about you in the back? Uh, actually, and very related, is a more general question about, um, you started getting questions about how you have a lot of insights from Twitter. You use Twitter as a source of information. Yeah. Uh, is that something that <laughs> yeah, I mean, Twitter is interesting because I think it went, it's, it's gone through so many changes. And again, in thinking about like how most people use Twitter, um, I think I would say like a few years ago, Twitter was almost more of like a public texting type of a product where it was people just randomly talking to other people that they actually knew. Um, but the, the focus that they've sort of pushed the product is more 
in this. I think Twitter is like the one product that like truly exhibits the tendencies of what's intended by the word social media. It is actually like media in a, in a social way. Um, and I think that they're pushing more and more towards that. Um, it'll be, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because they're clearly trying to make it more of that. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people don't give them the credit um, for that. And they kind of just try to bucket into any other like social network product, which it's not, it's, it's more of social media. Um, but I mean, I think I'm, I'm optimistic. I mean, I still use the product all the time. I think the changes that they're making are, again, are very true to what that definition of like social media actually is. Uh, well, look at this. <laughs> Taking the Sandy technique here of just getting in there and doing it, right? All right. Well, yes. Since you are so aggressive yes. and you use my name, you know. <laughs> if it's very, uh, if it's very quick, yes, we want to get everyone on their way. But I'm sure you can stay just a few can minutes. You answer quickly, question. what your main categories of Quib are? Because it looks like venture capitalism, it looks like business news, it looks like you're capturing something very specific. I'm just wondering if mine. Yeah. So currently, the focus, I would say, is yeah, like tech startups everything related to that. So all of the like functional roles underneath that. So marketing, design, BD, corp dev. It's also, yeah, there's a bunch of VCs. Um, and then a little bit around sort of the fuzzy edges of like how does all of that intersect with more like n normal, I guess, normie industries. Like maybe I'll make up another new word um, where there's people who maybe are working in like the digital marketing realm or design of like GE and sort of these more like traditional, traditional companies. Awesome. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Sandy, for uh, sharing parts of your story. Thank you. it's awesome. <laughs> really appreciate you spending the time, and uh, I, hopefully, you can spare uh, a few minutes and uh, people can ask you some more questions. But sure. uh, yeah. we will let everyone else go. So we'll see you in the next soapbox. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you.